The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Well, it's the dog days of August up here on Beacon Hill, but we've got a couple of interesting stories uh, from this week to revisit with Katie Lannon and Chris Lasinski. Hi, guys. Hi, Sam. Hey, Sam. Happy Friday. Hey, same to you. And Matt Murphy is off today. Colin Young is out uh, chasing down a lead, but he might uh, join us in a little bit. But uh, yeah, if you're uh, getting in the car to go down the Cape today or head up to Maine, you might encounter some uh, some snarled traffic. But uh, come to find out, um, and uh, we've got a report to tell us, so uh, there's generally... Uh, yeah, th- thanks for the sound effect, Chris. 157 pages hitting the uh, podcast oh, you're table. you're welcome. This yeah. is a, a multimedia podcast. Yes, nope, it, that's it, all sound. That's not what that is. <laughs> so, uh, true. <laughs> um, but we do have a report to tell us that uh, there is, what's that say, Chris? Congestion in the Commonwealth. Yeah, and you've got it all marked up, all 157 pages, with sticky notes and, and, and various uh, highlights and... It was yesterday morning that uh, Transportation Secretary Stephanie Pollack uh, briefed us with Governor Baker on um, this. How long had this report been in the works, Chris? Well, technically it had been in the works for close to a year. Uh, The origins of this came last August when the governor vetoed legislation that would have launched a pilot program to explore congestion pricing. Uh, Key term that we're probably going to come back to a number of times over this uh, recording session that refers to charging higher tolls at specific times of the day to try and push drivers to spread out their trips and not crowd the roadways all at rush hour. So uh, he ordered that last August, gave the Department of Transportation nine months to complete it, the final deadline was pushed back a couple of different times, and we finally got it on Thursday. Yeah, so there's a lot of traffic. Um, and uh, Stephanie Pollock actually had a good quote that we, we don't need a report to tell us this, but um, the point is the report went in-depth, and they identified some possible solutions that uh, the administration is going to look at. Exactly, and that's really the big takeaway from this, is what we're all going to do about the congestion that everybody in the greater Boston area and many in other parts of the state, as the report points out, are feeling uh, growing even worse every day. Um, The big thing is that the governor still does not support the type of congestion pricing that kicked off this study in the first place. He does not think it's a good idea, even after reviewing this data, reviewing the infrastructure we have in place across the state, to take our roadways and charge all drivers uh, a higher toll to drive at 8 a.m. on a weekday than they would pay at 12 p.m. on a weekday. He thinks that there's serious equity concerns about that. If you're someone with a really fixed schedule, you have to get your kids to childcare, you have to go and take care of an elderly or ill relative. Uh, He thinks it's unfair to have those people stuck paying the tolls because they can't change their travel behavior like some other drivers might be. And as he pointed out, uh, the infrastructure we have in place doesn't exactly support this. The only tolled roads are the Mass Pike and some of the tunnels. Um, So implementing congestion pricing right now could only really happen on those. And as we all know, pretty much every major roadway outside of those faces its own traffic problems as well. Sure. So before we talk about what some of the solutions might be, um, uh, let's talk about the, uh, the problem. And uh, you were uh, running through a list there uh, earlier this afternoon, Chris, of uh, the most congested uh, roadways in the state. 
and uh, Katie, uh, there was a lot of overlap, uh, coincidentally, with um, your commute. Yeah, it was a, a pretty familiar list to me as two, I believe, of the top five are ways I can actually drive to work. So uh, reassuring, <laughs> I, I will say that when I came in, when I drove south from Somerville this morning, um, which I, I do rarely, just to note, I do uh, often take a bus to the Orange Line. But this morning, it was a uh, clear sailing for an August Friday morning. Um, and I, I didn't hit the uh, several peak period hours this morning, I guess. But it a was a uh, silver lining. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure. Fingers crossed for the way home, I probably just jinxed myself. <laughs> and, and underlining just, just how bad some of these stretches are, far more so than others, of the, the top five most severe instances of congestion that this report tracked, mm. uh, two of them are I-93 southbound uh, up around the Somerville area, one at 7 a.m., one at 8 a.m., and another two of them are Route 2 eastbound toward Alewife, one at 7 a.m., one at 8 a.m. So uh, the absolute worst of the worst does seem to be concentrated in some some pretty narrow uh, peak areas, but we do see congestion everywhere. So is the focus in this report uh, mostly around uh, Metro Boston, or uh, what other area areas do we have in here? The, the report does take a look at uh, congestion all across the whole state. It points out that, you know, in Springfield and in Worcester, in urban areas, there does tend to be congestion as well, but that the absolute bulk of it is around the greater Boston region. That's where you'll find almost every roadway um, at its absolute worst. For example, uh, this is one that I, I think puts a good number on it. Uh, within the 128 I-95 belt, the peak period of travel time is now 14 hours of the day, starting around 5 or 6 a.m., going all the way until 7 or 8 p.m. Uh, by 7 a.m., half of all roadway miles within Route 128 are congested or highly congested, so that's 50 to 100 or even higher than 100% worse than uh, you would find at 4 in the morning. Katie? And that's just those numbers and those graphs are, are really, while it is kind of, you know, things that people already know and experience, it's it's weirdly validating as a driver. If you're, you know, I've left for, for trips or whatever, left work early with the idea of getting a head start and still sat in standstill traffic at three in the afternoon instead of at five. So it's it's almost reassuring in a weird way to see those red bars on the graphs to know like, Oh, it's not just me. It's not just bad luck. This is the the dynamic. Yeah, it's not just they're congested when you're driving. It's that they stay congested for uh, an even longer portion of the day than than they used to. Exactly. And, and uh, around the greater Boston region, as Katie was mentioning, leaving around 3 p.m., we're seeing rush hour starting, honestly, between 2 and 3 o'clock in the afternoon if you're within that 128 belt. Yeah, it's, it's nice to know I'm not just the world's unluckiest driver when it comes to traffic, though it certainly does create uh, bigger policy issues that need to be addressed. Right. And officials noted at that press conference, Chris, that um, the cause of a lot of this congestion is by itself uh, good news for the state, like good economy, a lot of jobs, uh, people trying to get to work. So the, the cause isn't a bad thing. Right. 
it's kind of a, a i don't know how else to, to phrase no no, it. <laughs> no you're, you're right though and that that is a point that they made and the logic does track to a certain degree the more jobs you have the more people that are going to move to the state to fill those jobs and the way that things work out uh the more cars are going to put on the roadways especially given that the housing market is as strange as it is because more often people are having to move farther away from the metro area farther away from their jobs just to find somewhere where they can afford to live and if you're 30 miles outside the city you're probably more likely to choose driving to work than you are to choose commuter rail or any one of those other options oh right yeah without getting this conversation too much into the tea and too, too much into the tea <laughs> but uh, uh one thing i've learned very quickly on this beat is that y- you can't separate housing and transportation from one another they're oh, well really deeply intertwined yeah all right so if trends are what they are then the infrastructure just needs to be adapted right and um as far as next steps go, Chris, uh, Governor Baker actually took this opportunity to point yet again, as, as he does often, to his housing production bill. Right. Uh, the, the housing bill that would lower the threshold needed for municipalities to make zoning changes. Uh, hopefully the goal there being to spurn additional housing production because construction of new units has not caught up with the way the population's growing. That was one thing that Baker pointed to. He also pointed to his administration's transportation bond bill that saw uh, additional investment in public transit to add close to 100,000 seats on the red and orange line. A big thing in that bond bill is the work from home tax credit that could be offered to employees, uh, to employers Hmm. to allow workers to stay in their living rooms or in their kitchens and the keep those cars off the road telecommuting right yeah. right um so a lot of what the response was as the governor unveiled this legislation was pointing to other bills he's already filed as key next steps i think the biggest one that we saw come directly out of the congestion study itself was this idea of managed lanes do you want me to get into that right now or do you yeah <laughs> let's let's hear about the managed lanes. That was quite the front page of the Herald this morning. Oh, what was the headline again? Charlie's luxury lanes, I believe, with uh, fat wallets only on the on the road sign. Hmm. Good good tabloid cover. So we don't really have anything like this in Massachusetts right now, but it is in place elsewhere in stretches of Virginia, stretches of Utah, some other places around the country. And what a managed lane is is basically like the middle ground between what we have now and congestion pricing where the existing lanes would stay just as they are free to all drivers and they would add another lane of traffic on top of that that you could pay to get into and drive faster and get where you're going more quickly. So you might say buy a transponder and then go through a gantry into this special private lane? Right, right. It would be kind of like an HOV lane and the governor said that if this were to work he would want to make sure that buses and cars that are carpooling could get in free without paying the toll. But the thinking is if you're a single driver and you can spare $3 to get yourself out of the traffic jam, you'll hop into this lane, pay that fee through your transponder, and as a subsequent result, more cars would be taken out of the main lanes and help that speed up a little bit. And there does seem to be some data from elsewhere in the country that these have some effect. One of the questions that's been bouncing around a lot about that, Chris, is with some of these roads that snake through our old New England towns, um, uh, there isn't always room to build an extra lane. You're right about that, and I think that that's part of the reason that 
the administration stopped short of outright endorsing managed lanes as the next step. Instead, it called for another study of just how feasible those are here in Massachusetts, given that many of our roads are already uh, pretty tightly alongside existing infrastructure or don't have room for expansion. So we won't actually know if this is something the administration is aggressively going to pursue for probably about another year as they embark on a, a deeper study of this idea. All right, Chris, I'm going to put you on the spot as you uh, flip through that 157-page report. Um, what's a fun fact you got out of this report? Well, I don't know how many drivers are going to think of this as a fun fact so much as an infuriating fact. But one of the biggest trends we saw here is not just the presence of congestion, but just how unpredictable it can be and how variable commutes can be. So the data in the report tracked a whole bunch of different common commutes. Uh, let's take Burlington to Kendall Square, for example. Not all that far on paper, probably 20 or 30 miles thereabouts. The average commute time heading inbound in the morning, it'll take you 40 minutes to make that trip. But some days it can take 30 minutes. Some days it can take as many as 75 minutes. And one out of every 10 days, it takes about 56, 57. So what those drivers face themselves doing is 10% of the time they're running 20 minutes behind what a normal day looks like. They end up either being 20 minutes late once every other week or having to build 20 extra minutes into their daily commutes each day and getting to work 15 minutes early and having no real use for that time, kind yeah. of just throwing it into the void. Yeah, loss of productivity. Just to chime in with the driver perspective there, not so much a fun fact, Chris. Well, we're talking about driving, Chris. Um, not not exactly related, but... Uh, What's uh, what's the latest on that distracted driving deal that fell apart at the end of formals last week? We're still waiting to find out, in all honesty. I, I spoke to both chairs this week, and they said that they continue to discuss and continue to work on it, um, but uh, did not put a timeline on when that might actually come out. So, in all honesty, uh, we don't have as much we don't have that much more insight into where it is now than we did a week ago. Sure, and we might not know until after Labor Day, all things considered. Right. Sure. Uh, now let's uh, let's hop in our car and take a little drive down to uh, Taunton. Uh, Katie, from, from reading the local paper down in Taunton, uh, it seemed like uh, maybe a week ago uh, their incumbent Democratic mayor, Thomas Hoy, was poised to run for re-election. Things changed very quickly down there. Yeah, that's right. It, it looks like it was kind of a, a whirlwind down there in the Silver City. Um, as, I didn't know as that. Taunton is sometimes called. I didn't know that. Uh, the, the local paper, the Taunton Daily Gazette, reported last Friday, and uh, this certainly isn't a knock on them. It's, uh, it's good reporting to kind of nail these things down and check in during the nomination period, because on Friday, they reported that the, the mayor told him he was planning to return his nomination papers by Monday or by Tuesday. And, of course, come Monday, um, Mayor Hoy was... Governor Baker's appointee for interim Bristol County Register of Probate and not running for re-election. Um, he told me that afternoon that he was not going to run for re-election and would instead uh, be in the future seeking the the permanent post. So that that shook things up in what was otherwise on, on track to be a relatively sleepy uh, municipal race. Mm. And that opened the door for uh, a state rep from Taunton to throw her hat into the ring. And that was with that nomination paper deadline uh, not that far off. That's right. It was um, the, the nomination 
period nomination paper period closed Tuesday. The papers had to be back uh, with Taunton City Hall and by my math, that gave uh, poten- potential candidates, uh, if they happened to be in town and not on their own summer vacations, just about 25 hours to turn in their 25 signatures. Now, of course, as as uh, the, the current mayor pointed out to me, 25 signatures is not quite a daunting task. You have 25 friends. Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. Um, hopefully <laughs> you can know at least 25 people who want you to be mayor if you're going to run for mayor. Um, but yeah, the, the first one that we saw jump into that race was, uh, representative Sean O'Connell, Taunton Republican within hours. Yeah. And that left some folks, uh, wondering if she might've had a leg up in, in, in this whole thing. Yeah, that's right. The, the state democratic party was pretty quick to, uh, criticize what they described as the governor's attempt to handpick the city's next mayor. Um, you know, the, the Republican party, the governor and Reb O'Connell's party have said that that's a ridiculous claim. But it also, you know, isn't what ended up happening. There were more candidates than just Representative O'Connell to turn in the race. Three others pulled to enter the race. Three others returned their papers. Right. Another Republican and two Democrats. Another Republican, a Democrat and an unenrolled candidate. So it'll it'll be a busy fall. It seems like. Yeah. And, and one, one of the interesting things is there is, you know, Chris had actually talked to one of the current city councilors who said that he hadn't heard anything before this, this all happened about O'Connell getting into the race or wanting to run. And normally in municipal politics, uh, folks hear things, right? And, and, and you would expect there to be some kind of a, 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 a whisper yeah, I, I think municipal elections tend to be a, a much more close-knit group than some of the larger scale ones. Um, the city council I spoke to said he was frankly surprised to to hear that, that uh, it came as news to him uh, that uh, Rep O'Connell was, was so interested in the race. Oh, Colin Young. <laughs> How you doing? Hey, Sam. Hey, welcome, uh, welcome back. Hey, thanks. Um, you've been chasing down a lead this Friday afternoon. That's right. That's right. Got a little news uh, on an August Friday, usually a sleepy time here in Beacon Hill. Yeah, on uh, the Vineyard Wind Project. Um, so our, our minds can go down to Martha's Vineyard for a moment this Friday. Only our minds? Um, well, well, we'll see. For now. For now. Um, uh, you heard from Vineyard Wind officials, and their project uh, seemed to be a little held up. And we talked about this, I think, last week or the week before on the podcast. And one of the things that you had talked about was uh, how important this tight timeline is to making the project uh, profitable and viable moving forward. And uh, it sounds like there's yet another delay. Yeah, that's right. The federal government delivered uh, Friday afternoon what may be uh, a pretty serious blow to the Vineyard Wind Project. So basically what's happened here, Sam, is that the U.S. Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, which has... uh, which we've been waiting to issue a final environmental impact statement, which would allow the Vineyard Wind Project to move forward. Uh, They've decided that before they issue that final um, environmental impact statement, the agency wants to conduct a more comprehensive review of the impacts of offshore wind projects uh, in the works up and down the East Coast, not just the Vineyard Wind Project, uh, but they won't issue that final statement, that final permit for Vineyard Wind until this, um, they're calling it a cumulative impacts analysis, is completed. That sounds like a major review. Uh, any idea how long that would take? Uh, 
Well, word is the uh, Bureau of Ocean Energy Management plans to expedite this review, um, but certainly it won't be done uh, by the end of this month, which is when Vineyard Wind officials have said that they would need sort of the final go-ahead from the feds if they're going to be able to stick to their current timeline, uh, construction schedule, etc. Yeah, and uh, we're already a little bit behind what they had been planning on. Uh, what was it, June or July, that they were expecting to have this statement finished up? Yeah, July, exactly. They were expecting to get the final uh, environmental impact statement in July, which would allow them to move forward with the plan to financially close on the project this year, begin onshore construction this year, uh, and start generating electricity from its 84 turbines by 2022. Um, that all that timeline has now been thrown into doubt by the, the federal government's um, actions this afternoon. Uh, it's unclear when the review will be completed. If I had to guess, I would guess that uh, we're probably looking at a final environmental impact statement in the year 2020 rather than 2019. Oh, wow. Um, but Again, that's mere speculation. Um, In an interview with Bloomberg News this afternoon, uh, he didn't return my calls, but the uh, U.S. Secretary of the Interior uh, told Bloomberg News about this decision today that if the offshore wind industry in America is going to thrive, the federal government needs to uh, dot its I's and cross its T's. So this new interior secretary appears to be taking a very cautious uh, approach towards towards offshore wind uh, and wants to understand how the robust build-out of offshore wind projects up and down the East Coast would affect the fishing industries, uh, marine mammals, other ocean life, and recreation. Now, one of the reasons that Vineyard Wind officials have been on such an expedited timeline themselves is they have a deadline to get this uh, investment tax credit, right, Colin? Um, so then that's now thrown into jeopardy. And um, is, is that, would, would not getting that tax credit be the end of Vineyard Wind? That's a great question. Um, certainly the ITC ha- is a linchpin to the financing of, of this project. Uh, project officials say, though, that it's not the be-all, end-all. Uh, but certainly the, the, the schedule for this project had been laid out so that uh, the project would qualify for this uh, 12% federal tax credit. Certainly uh, now... There's some question over uh, whether there may be any extension of this tax credit or a possible exemption from uh, uh, the the deadlines for it uh, for this project. Uh, But certainly if they don't, if the project does not qualify for the investment tax credit, uh, it definitely changes the calculus for the project because it immediately would make the project, which is already pegged at $2.8 billion, that much more expensive. So what I hear you saying is that the project isn't dead, but it's in jeopardy. Yeah, that, that I'd say that's right. Um, the officials from Vineyard Wind were adamant today. Uh, I'll give you the quote. To be clear, the Vineyard Wind One project remains viable and continues to move forward. Uh, but they also acknowledge that this definitely changes some things for them. Sure. Well, thanks for working on that this Friday afternoon. And uh, hey, my pleasure. Yeah. Catching us up to date on that. Catch you down the vineyard. Huh. Uh, I'm, I'm actually headed up to Maine this weekend for some uh, fish and chips takeout from one of my favorite chowder houses up there. But, hey, very uh, nice. What are you up to this weekend? Uh, no plans, but maybe I'll have, to, uh, I'll have to find some takeout somewhere along the way. You know, that's always a good plan. And uh, Caitlin, our producer, Caitlin Badayan, how about yourself? 
I am also planning takeout this fine evening, uh, but that's about it. Huh. Well, thanks to Caitlin, our producer, uh, who's been with us uh, since which month, Caitlin? January. Since January. And uh, this is your final Statehouse Takeout episode. Indeed. Unless something unless something momentous happens in the next two weeks before I leave. Yeah. Oh, because, uh, right, we do have an adjournment order uh, being taken up today. Uh, in, unless Chair hears objection. Uh, <laughs> Uh, w- uh, the Statehouse Takeout will be taking a, a small summer recess itself. Uh, we shall return on Friday the 30th of August, just ahead of, just ahead of Labor Day and a potential return to activity on Beacon Hill. So anyways, have a good weekend and a good rest of August, folks. Have fun in Maine, Sam. Hey, thanks, Caitlin. See ya. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.